So, in the interests of total honesty, I don't actually have a lot to say about this game. Uh, it was an interesting request. I, uh, I'm kind of a bit of a variety channel in general. I don't focus on, you know, one thing or one genre like most other uh, YouTube or streamers do. Um, so I tend to get requests like this every now and again where it's like, hey, I want you to look at this random game. You know, I had a request for a text adventure a few months ago, for example. But the weird thing about this one is that I was having a really hard time finding anything from a behind-the-scenes perspective. I normally like in these ruminations to go ahead and go back and see, okay, well, what went into the making of the game or the movie or whatever, you know? What was, what was constructed there? What were these people thinking? And I don't know a lot about this one. There's just not a lot of info about this one. And that's weird because I've played this game before. And I'm not saying as that as that I'm not saying that it's some kind of hipster cred thing. Uh, this game was actually introduced to me by a friend of mine, Jonathan, all the way back in the day, back when it first came out. And he was describing the setting of the shells and the orbiting around Septera itself. And my thought was, oh god, that sounds so cool. And so I sat down and ended up playing it alongside him, basically. He, he actually lived in another state, but you know we were playing it at the same relative time. And then I put it away and didn't think about it for, gosh, I guess like 15 years or however long it's been at this point. And then someone's like, I want you to look at Septericorn. My first thought was, sweet, I get to talk about that game. All right, let's, let's figure out. Okay, it was made by a company that basically doesn't exist a company that was made out of the ruins of Viacom to make this game and then immediately broke up again. I have no idea where the developers went or what they're doing now. Um, it was made under the monolith label. They published it, but it's about all I got there. I have no idea what the ideas were going into this game, why they made it, what they were I could speculate, but I'd be, I'd be writing on a blank sheet of paper at this point. So what do I say about this game? Now, I am going to say something. This is my big speculation. This game came out, uh, actually it was in 1999, so I guess it's been longer than 15 years now, hasn't it? Either way, this game came out in an era where uh, CRPGs were really in a in an all-time high at this point. You know, Baldur's Gate was successful, uh, Neverwinter Nights was doing its thing, Fallout 2, I believe, was out at this point in time. I don't remember if Arcanum or Arcanum was actually out yet. I actually I don't recall. So CRPGs were doing well, and of course JRPGs had finally become popular here in the states. And so we had you know Final Fantasy VII exploded, as I've discussed many times before. And as a result, it was getting more attention here, and we would end up getting you know future games like uh, you know, Bahamut, uh, Le uh, Legend of the Lagoon, and uh, Bahamut Lagoon, and all, all sorts of stuff like that. <clears throat> So I feel like this was an attempt to capitalize on this unique little slice of history by making what is effectively a CRPG JRPG. Because that's really what this game feels like. Now again, all of this is just speculation, because I couldn't find Jack about the making of this game. It's frustrating. And I want to talk about that gameplay side of things first. The gameplay isn't what I would call great it's not like I was like, oh man, this is awesome. But it did do several things I rather enjoyed. Uh, first of all, the 
For major boss battles and whatnot, I, I enjoyed the charge meter thing. For those of you who haven't played this game, uh, there's this meter thing that just kind of builds up, and at certain points in the game you get more meters to fill, and certain attacks use up certain amount of the meter. Now, if you have any excess partial meter, like if you have one and a half meter, and you use a one meter cost thing, it burns the whole one and a half. So, you, so it gets down to a little bit of a timing thing, because you want to click on the portrait like the second that it gets to... Uh, and then it gets full, so you can use the attack without, with, without any loss of efficiency. That's especially important on some of the boss battles, because, whew, uh, this game is not particularly easy, at least uh, for certain points. What's funny is, by the time I got to the end of the game, it got a lot easier. Pretty much the moment you start getting really good fate cards, uh, the game just kind of starts nosediving in terms of difficulty. I'm not sure what I think of that. But I like that that thing. It isn't quite the Mario RPG thing of, you know, active button pressing and, and, and interactive turn-based combat, but it's like a step halfway towards that. So I found that a little more engaging than just, all right, attack, 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 or auto battle, or, you know, whatever. I also have to admit, the mirror-law-chaos combo was a little bit overpowered as soon as I found out about that one. Uh, <clears throat> that was fun. Whoops, forgot to meet my phone. That's so rare that I do that. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, then, so, the, the the design of the overworld and the dungeon world both very much felt, felt to me like, a again, a combination of the JRPG thing and the CRPG thing. Uh, although, if anything, I was kind of reminded of Fallout 2, you know, okay, well, here's where I am, and I need to get over there. Uh, I'm going to over... By the way, huge praise to the world maps. In all, in all sincerity, I loved how they presented the different shells. I'll talk about that later. So, you know, and then you go into the, the, the dungeon, the town layer, whatever you want to call that. Whoop. Talk to NPCs, again, just like your typical CRPG. Um, but what I really liked was the battlefields, which you could do for optional experience or parts or whatever, and the the way they handled the dungeon mechanic, where you can't rest. It made it feel like the entire dungeon was presented as one encounter that you're just picking your way through different phases of. And it would be very easy for that to be frustrating and annoying, but I feel like they did a good job of, of making it so that you, you know, as long as you're keeping up relatively, you have a real, you know, you have a good chance of getting through it without being too frustrated or too irritated or whatever. Um, I do, I do have one small complaint about the, the timing ATB bar. And that's the fact that at certain points in the game, it felt like you're just going to be spamming the first attack over and over and over because you're fighting trash. And what I'm trying to say is that the only fights where the ATB bar filling gauge system actually mattered was the major encounters, you know, major event encounters and boss fights. You know, Doskius is a great example that I know he's the last boss, but, you know, it's the one that's the most relevant in my mind because I just finished the game, so I suppose it makes sense. Um... But on trash fights, on just general, all right, here's an encounter fights. It was especially in the battlefields. Again, it was just like, all right, attack, 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 attack. And I know that's kind of what a trash fight is. I just think that trash fights are something that need to stop existing in RPGs in general, in my opinion. Now, I also have one small complaint, and that's the fact that there's generally a lack of music except in combat. I mean, there's some decent ambient music, or I shouldn't say music, sorry, sounds, that help to flesh out certain of the areas, but there's just a lack of music, and that has always bothered me in, in games. It's just forever. I, I got to the point where I just pulled up iTunes on the side and was like, okay, well, I'm on 
Uh, I'm on Shell 6 right now, so let's pull up the, you know, the dungeon playlist. I'm on Shell 7 now, so let's go ahead and pull up the, the, the dead despair playlist, etc., etc. You know, because I, I needed some kind of music, right? Um, I also want to comment on the weirdness of the way they do side quests. There's not that many side quests at all. I probably missed a couple, in all honesty. I was kind of in a hurry, as I always am, for Ruminations. But there's two side quests which are practically mandatory. Now, thankfully, I did actually have a game fact to help me out with uh, with these two things. I was I was kind of being weirded out by it because there's an interesting little mechanic. See, uh, Lead and Lobo, for fairly obvious reasons, really don't like each other, and there's a little variable that means that they will randomly attack each other, most notably Lead to Lobo, rather than whoever it is you actually want them to target. Uh, the same thing goes for uh, Corgan and Selena, actually. But if you do their side quests, then that's no longer an issue. Now, this was relevant for me because Lead and Lobo were both arguably two of my favorite party members, alongside Aram, were the three I enjoyed using the most. So I kind of wanted them to not be killing each other. And as it happens, when you get to the final dungeon, there's sections where you're basically forced to split up the party, and Corgan and Selena will be in a party, and Led and Lobo will be in a party. So there you are, final dungeon, and if you hadn't done those side quests, uh, sucks to be you. <laughs> not sure what I think about that. It makes sense. I mean, I, I applaud it for that. It makes sense, because Led despises Lobo for, for what Lobo is. But, of course, Lobo, and we know this, isn't really responsible, having been given free will and all that. Uh, and so going on this whole side quest to, to, to diff, diff, diffuse the Jinnom bioweapon, or Jinnom... I don't remember how they pronounce it, sorry. The the bioweapon, uh, that that makes sense. It would, be, it would help Led to be like, oh, okay, you're, you're not so bad after all. And same thing with Corrigan and Selena going on the whole side quest to help his people finally be able to rest at peace, getting the relic back, etc., etc. You know, that's all good. I like that. I like being engaged. I like wanting to have a lore reason for going to do this stuff. And I like that it has gameplay consequences. So, I don't know. I'd, I'd call that a net positive. It's just kind of a weird situation to talk about. Speaking of weird situations to talk about, I suppose I, I don't actually have much else to say about the gameplay. I'm checking my notes here really quick. So I suppose we'll go ahead and talk about the... Uh, see, we'll talk about the story next, you know, the, the six points of story. But this is a good time to mention that... Uh, okay. Please don't hate me for this. As ever, I try to be open and honest on, on my videos, on my streams. And so what you're getting is the real me, uh, so to speak. This is how I act around other people. This is how I talk around other people. And this game isn't super memorable to me, with one exception, which I'll talk about last. You know, the plot... I, I, I mean, I could summarize the plot for you. It's, it's not the most engaging of plots. There's an evil guy who thinks he is going to be the next messiah... Oh, he's not. It's actually you. That's. I mean, I mean, I'm being disingenuous, but the plot wasn't super engaging. It starts off reasonably well, you know, ah, vengeance, and then encountering more and more people as you go down in order to try and, and deal with this whole situation. And, and as, as you traverse the shells and learn about the shells, but none of the characters really st struck out for me, like Selena and her whole thing. I, what do I say about that? What do I say about Selena? Like, it's obvious why she had so much loyalty to Doskius, right? I mean, that's a duh. But then he abandoned her because she was of low birth, right? So it's like, 
so now she's a little bit pissed about this, but she was still loyal to him. And in fact, as we see in the ending, you know, as ever, spoilers, she remained loyal to him. She actually stayed with him on the core to die with him because she loved him just that much. Despite the fact that she turned against him for being, let's be honest, incredibly evil, Doskius is, is one of the weirdest examples of a villain I've seen in a long time, by the way. I suppose I'll talk about him because I have something to say about him. But my point is, most of the characters, I don't have anything to say about them. And, I, and it's not really an insult. It's not like the game was bad in terms of its story. It's just, I don't have anything to discuss. And that's the whole point of these ruminations. I could give you a summary. I could just synopsize. But I don't see the point in that. Um, so anybody who, of, the, of you, if you've, if you've watched this far into the video, you've probably played this game. I would love to hear your thoughts about the characterization in this game. Because I just generally found it fairly lacking. Aram... Uh, he, as I mentioned earlier, he's a character that kind of stuck out for me. Uh, the whole the mega arms thing was kind of cool. And his insistence on shifting loyalties, the old boss, the old bad all that fun stuff. That was cool. I like that. Um, I did like Led. She was, he was a character I, I, felt, I felt bad for. She's got this whole self, self-conscious thing going on. And, and people are just like, oh, Led. Um... But I don't, like, like I, I don't know what to say about Maya, for example. What do I say about Maya? Uh, it was cool that, that we had a main female protagonist, I guess, but they didn't do anything with her. And, and that's kind of my complaint, regardless of gender, is the fact that she's just there. I mean, she kind of gets the ball rolling, I suppose. I do kind of like the idea... So let's talk about Doskius, then I'll get back to Maya for just a second, because there's one thing I have to share about that. So Doskius, right? The villain. <laughs> I always have more to talk about the villains than I do the main characters. I swear I'm not evil, guys. Doskius uh, is a really bland and disinteresting villain, in my opinion. Um, so I do like the idea of how the Chosen operate. It's the kind of thing that caught my attention, caught, caught my interest. This whole, <clears throat> I guess, fake paradise kind of thing, right? You know, Shell One is this great, beautific place. You know, it's the furthest out. They've got the most sunlight. It, it's this clean... Uh, wonderful, beautiful place, and yet the chosen, the the ones on the shell one, fight each other all the time, for very petty reasons. Like it's just normal, and it's kind of it kind of reminds me of what I refer to as the era of the Cassus Belly in real life, where noble lords and aristocrats and kings and princes and dukes and fish and frogs will all fight each other for basically any reason that comes to mind, because that's just how you do it, and they will send troops off to war basically just because. But I love the little niggle that adds that fantasy-slash-sci-fi tint to it of, well, we don't want to mess up our territory. Remember, they need to keep this paradise thing going on. So they gotta fight elsewhere. They have what are effect, they're not quite proxy battles, because they're still fighting each other. But they have like this set of rules or, 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 or method by which, you know, there's, there's a proper way to commence war. We have to go down to, to Shell 2, for example, or Shell 3 or whatever. And, and of course, this leads to Maya's situation. Something about that just amused me. But Doskius is like one of the worst of this. He is this, this, evil bastard who demonstrably does not care about other people, actively is totally okay with just killing anyone he doesn't actually care about. Um, you know, you know, for... I... I'm sorry, could you be specific? I mean, I killed I killed all your family and people, but I fought a lot of wars in Shell, too. Could you help me out here? Because it's just so normal to him. It's so ordinary for him to go off and wage war and basically ruin the lives of the common people. In other words, 
This guy, Doskius, is practically the er example of the corrupt aristocrat. Uh, nowadays, in the modern era, we would call him a fat cat, you know, a corrupt uh, corporate mogul, you know, sitting there patting his... Again, I don't have a belly. It's the second time this week I've had to, to pat my belly for a visual reference. You know, he's sitting there patting his belly like, <laughs> yep, yep, just... This is what's how this works. You got a problem with it? Well, you got to climb your way up the ladder, which you can't because you're poor and worthless. You know, it's, 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 that attitude just exudes from him. And he is just a dick about it the entire game, up to and including the final boss. And, of course, his whole shtick is that he wants to be the Messiah because he's a direct uh, descendant of Marduk. So it's like, okay... I, I automatic like in, in addition to being this rich aristocrat asshole, he also has a bit of an entitlement problem because I am a descendant of Marduk. I am the one who should rule on high as Sultan. And then of course, so all of this at least kind of helps. Like like as weird as that sounds, it's a very boring. Uh, excuse me, basic kind of a villain, but at least they, they're fairly consistent in that portrayal, and it does help to serve as a central platform for several of the characters to get involved. Pardon me a second. I blow my throat out here. So, you know, it, at least his portrayal as this rich, aristocratic dickhead helps to inform one of the major themes of the work, which, again, I'll talk about in a moment. But then... You beat him, and the ending starts playing, and he's like, Oh, I see now. You are truly the chosen of Marduk. Go save our... He just... He suddenly turns into a good guy. In the ending. In the ending! There's no hint of this in the entire game. I mean, he, I, I guess he's decent to Salinas. That, that's something. But he, he, he comes across as this horrible person the entire game. This just unpleasant individual in addition to being evil and then in the very like right there at the finish line wait 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 guys 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 <clears throat> i've decided to stop being evil um sorry about this uh, it was totally my b I was, I, was, I was a little vegeta loco there <laughs> that's a reference none of you're gonna get um <laughs> just out of nowhere it bugs the crap out of me every time i see that i, I mean I actually rewatched the ending on YouTube. I pulled up the ending just to be like, did I miss something? No, no. He just, he just suddenly says, "You, you are the one who must be, you know, the the great." Oh my God. Whatever, whatever. So, and of course he says, "Maya, you know, it's you." And she's still got those damn tattoos from when she had to infiltrate a lot earlier. And what? And so I guess we'll talk about Maya a bit more here because I said I would, and we're going to talk about the themes because I said I would. I feel like the central theme of this work, I feel like the primary arc that they're going for is the idea of humanity as a concept, as a whole, I guess I should say, rising up beyond its limitations and its perspectives and its, for lack of a better term, pettiness in order to become part of a greater community. And I'll talk about that in just a moment as well. And so the idea that Doskius provides this foil to the main characters in so many different ways and serves as a method by which they can prove their worth, that, that he is the one who is pushing them, unintentionally of course, so that they can rise above and become the heroes that they need to be, is, is kind of an undercurrent theme throughout the whole work and it informs a lot of the quests and arcs and general paths as you're going through the shells. So I kind of like that. Um, I suppose this is also a good time to talk about the whole, you know, kingdom of heaven thing. 
So this is purely my own opinion and interpretation of things. But I, I got to say, I've, I've always felt that this is a science fiction story, not a fantasy story. Um, or at least more science fiction than fantasy. The idea here being that this feels like a race of precursors, you know, whatever you want to call them, advanced aliens or beings or individuals or whatever, who have deliberately designed and engineered certain circumstances on planets, and then the idea is to test those people, to, to give those people a chance to prove that they deserve to be part of the greater galactic community, or whatever you want to call that, to rise up and then reach out to the stars. So that it serves as sort of a real-life parallel to the paradox of uh, how real-life creatures, sentient, sapient beings, could reach out to the stars, and the idea of if they're unified or if they're horrific, all that kind of stuff, you know. Basically enforcing... I have this mental image of this race of beings that were the first ones out to the out to space, and they're like, "Okay, we need to make sure no one no one screws this up." So we're gonna make it so that we're gonna we're gonna build these worlds, and we're gonna put people on them, and we're gonna we're gonna test them, or or change the worlds into something, and then we're gonna test them, and we're gonna say, "Okay, prove that you belong in the community," that kind of a thing. And I kind of like that idea, but I also mention this because. I never, even when I played this game originally, I never took the mythos of this game at face value. You know, the idea that the creator you know, created this place, but also Gemma, the, the great demon, was like, Rawr, I want Lyra because I'm evil. And she's like, no, but it's okay, I'm going to get this mirror and it's going to create the stars and just all this stuff. I never took that at face value. It always sounded more to me like the kind of stories people who don't understand would pass down of events that actually happened, but of course did not actually happen as advertised. That's kind of the impression I always got from that, especially since we found out the whole, you know, gift of heaven, kingdom of heaven thing was completely different from what was advertised in the legends and the myths. So, just, you know, more fuel to the fire on that one. Um, gosh, do I have anything else to say at all? I'm just looking at my notes here. I do have one last thing to talk about. And that would be the setting. So I'm going to admit something here. Uh, I have taken a deliberate and knowing influence in some of my works. In fact, I have a whole setting uh, that's built around a concept that was inspired by Septeracor. Because while the plot is, isn't really memorable and I don't really have a lot to say about the characters, I love the setting. I love the idea of this world of layers. Um, I've actually tried to, to physically make, you know, make a model of, of how exactly this would work, and I failed because... It's it's a weird situation the way they present it, but I love this concept. In fact, one of the, I mentioned praise for the world maps earlier. I got to give extra super special praise to those world maps because as you go further, so in each map there's like cloud layers and you can kind of see uh, what's down below and you can see the, the 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 other continents down below. And as you get further down, the clouds get a little more dense and things get a little darker and a little darker until you get all the way towards the bottom and it's like you barely can even see the sun. And, of course, that is a relevant thing for each shell, too. It, as you go further down into the shells, their very biomes and environments and cultures and people are adapted to, to, to where they are in the layer. As I mentioned earlier, Shell 1 with the Chosen is this great beautific place in the pseudo-paradise. And, of course, they do so much of their fighting on Shell 2. And this is, this is kind of a cool little thing, wonderful little set, setting building thing. They don't really have a lot of a trash or refuse or anything like that problem on Shell 1. Why would they? They just dump it over the side. 
Meanwhile, on Shell 2, it's kind of this this irradiated, blasted hellscape with, with debris everywhere because it's where they do all their fighting and it's where they dump all their trash. It is, in other words, a, a literal metaphor for the, the working class or the normal people or the serfs or the peasants or whatever you want to call it, providing the support that allows the upper crust of the aristocracy to function as is. Then, but then as we go further down, <clears throat> we see more stuff like this. Um, I don't have much to say about Shell 3, but Shell 4, 5, 6, and 7 all follow a kind of theme, in my opinion. Basically, uh, different layers of society. Uh, so, actually, I guess I could say something about Shell 3. So let's, let's go back up to Shell 2 really quick. The idea of, you know, living just this, this horrible, like, basically post-apocalyptic pseudo-life-is-hard kind of a situation. But you go down to Shell 3, and what you have is, well, it's kind of like an agrarian society thing. It's not quite, but, you know, it's, it's leaning in that direction. Um, in other words, it's either the people who have started making the basic functions of society, you know, your typical uh, Lord of the Rings slash Oblivion slash, you know, green English grassland kind of a fantasy setting place, um, either because that's where they first started or because it, if you think of it thematically, you know, we've got the aristocracy, which creates the apocalypse, which creates the post-apocalypse. So this is the point at which they've kind of recovered now. Again, thematic, not literal. Then we go down to uh, Shell 4, where people have started to industrialize, where people now have, uh, you know, cities and, and, and everything that comes with a city. You know, they have crime problems and pollution problems and, and problems with uh, people being abused and, 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 and all the horrible stuff, but also the, the, the progress, the ideas that come with being a city and being an industrial civilization, uh, greater access to new tech, which allows for more variety of options and, and lifestyles and... and economic principles, all that fun stuff. And then you go back down f below five. See, we, we, we continue, continuing this thematic path. We have started at Agrarian. We've advanced to Cityscape. Then we get to Shell 6. Or wait. No, I'm sorry. There's Shell 5. Excuse me. 4 was the city. 5 is uh, five is the point at which we have gotten very advanced technology. We are super, you know, way beyond the industrial age, basically at, like, modern age or further, pseudo-futuristic. But there's all these problems that come with it because all of this advanced tech and all of this advanced infrastructure that the society has requires a certain level of um, resources and personnel and time and service in order to keep it functioning, which is why they're basically always at war. Uh, the resource wars is actually, I, I believe, the most recent war that they actually mention that was happening on Shell 5, as I mentioned. Yeah, between Ankara and Jinnam, the one I kind of referenced earlier with the bioweapon. And then it's like, okay, so what do you go after that? What happens after you are in a society where you can basically destroy each other? Well, then we see things degenerate even more into what is basically pirate hell as we go down to Shell 6, where the constant warring and the constant technological progress at the, at the expense of people has led to what is effectively a degenerate society, um, hence, hence Shell 6. And you can kind of see how, if you were watching 
like a single society rather than all these different places. You could see how they could progress through these shells as we make our way further and further down to the core. And of course, the final shell is the most telling, in my opinion, Shell 7, which is this incredibly warped, mutant, basically alien landscape where they barely ever have the sun and everything is mutated and there's toxic fumes and they don't even have the ability to do basic radio at this point because the core energy is so powerful. And it's just this this wild... Um, what's the word I want to use? Like, like brutal, savage landscape, which you have to go through with all this bioluminescent, people can't even properly see, you know. In other words, the, the after effects of the rampant excess of 6, which came from the rampant excess of 5, which came as a natural byproduct of 4, which came as a natural advancement of 3, which came as a way to pull out of 2, which came as a consequence of 1. Now again, I don't mean this literally, I mean this more thematically. Uh, although there are some literal connections there, one to two being an obvious one. I just, I, I've always loved the way they present the shells and the, the layering of um, societal progress as we go through the shells and the idea of literally being able to look over the edge of a continent and seeing another continent down below you is just a fascinating idea to me. I love the setting of Subterra Core. I absolutely, absolutely adore it. I really wish uh, they did done more with it, if anything. I, I would love to see a proper remake of this game. I would love to see a, a sequel uh, to this game. Because they don't really actually explain the Kingdom of Heaven thing. I gave you my speculation, you know, the advanced people, test, galactic community, but they don't actually explain it. It's just, uh, there's those other worlds, and there's those cities. They already passed their tests, so they're cool. You can interact with them now. But what does that mean? Why were they there? Why are they so close as to be visible? That's probably just uh, artistic license. Um, what does it mean? You know, I, I would love to know more about that. So if any of you guys has ever have any thoughts or comments or uh, speculation, you know, your own theories and works on the matter, I'd, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. Unfortunately, I don't have anything else to share myself. Uh, it was actually kind of a treat going through this game again. I wish I had more to talk about. And I will see you guys next time.